You're listening to the National Gallery of Ireland podcast. This special podcast was recorded to mark our exhibition, George Wallace Reflections on Life. This is an exhibition of graphic work by the Irish Canadian artist George Wallace. In this recording, Kit Wallace, the artist's son, in conversation with Anne Hodge, curator of prints and drawings at the National Gallery of Ireland, gives a fascinating insight into his father's life and how certain themes are manifested in his work. Anne and Kit also discuss the Wallace family's gift of over 250 prints and drawings presented to the gallery in 2016. The genesis of this exhibition is rooted in the wonderful gift of over 250 prints and drawings plus archival material which the Wallace family presented to the National Gallery of Ireland in 2016. Kit, I wonder, can you explain briefly why the family decided to gift this large body of work, which spans the whole of your father's career, to Ireland's national collection? Yes, well, going back a little bit, my father died in 2009. And um, about a year after that, I received uh, a shipment of all his works on paper that had been left in the estate. And um, that amounted to probably over a thousand um, prints of various kinds, um, drawings, as well as some paintings and um, various miscellaneous things that came out of his studio. So that left um, my siblings, my sister and brother and I, with a bit of a dilemma about what to do with all this art. My brother was taking care of um, several of the sculptures that my father had left behind. These would be um, life-size welded steel pieces as well as some bronze sculpture. And my sister uh, was taking care of his own, his, his personal print collection. So, um, we had various discussions about this and uh, wondered whether um, a gallery, a public gallery, might be interested in a donation of some of the work. Um, and again, just going back, he he wasn't very well known in Canada, and certainly not in not at all in Europe, to my knowledge. Um, he didn't exhibit a great deal during his lifetime because he worked as a, a teacher and a professor of art. So he hadn't had to rely on um, the commercialization of his art to make a living. Mm. Anyway, um, my brother and I had uh, wondered about whether Tates and Ives would be interested in looking at some of the um, early work that he did in Falmouth, and uh, specifically about the um, St. Austell uh, clay pit etchings. Yes, and we might talk a little bit in more detail later about those works. Yes. So um, anyway, I was invited to go to uh, a sailing event on Loch Derg in uh, 2015, and at the last minute I... Um, decided to bring along a small portfolio of some of his prints and uh, made contact with the National Gallery in Ireland and uh, 
And I was able to meet with Neve McNally and then yourself. Yeah. And um, and uh, I think the work was very well received at that point. It, it certainly was. I remember the day very well um, when you opened up this folder and these treasures appeared, amazing prints um, that were really exciting. Immediately I could see the quality and just the, the imagination. Uh, it was all there. Well, it was so wonderful to get that reception um, and a little unexpected too, but um, I had had this feeling. I visited the National Gallery of Ireland uh, a couple of years before that and uh, and thought that this might actually be a very good um, place for some of his work. So uh, Great. Because, of course, George was, was Irish. He was born in Sandy Cove. Isn't that correct? He was. Yeah. And um, did he, I mean, was being Irish important to him or did he talk much about his early years? Um, it it certainly was important to him. And I think his character was um, largely influenced by um, his growing up in Ireland. He left he he um, left Ireland uh, just after the war, after finishing a, a degree at Trinity College, um, and he never lived there uh, after that period. But um, my grandparents lived uh, near Killiney, and we always visited them every summer for summer holidays. So there was a very strong connection with Ireland. Um, and he went to school in St. Columbus College, I think, in the Dublin foothills. Um, he did, yes. I think would that have had a an important influence on his the route he took later in life? I imagine it did. I mean, he he um, told us stories about his uh, his school days um, and the. Uh, tyrannical um, sergeant-at-arms. <laughs> um, I don't know if that was at Aravan. Or, I think, or... Yeah, I think I remember reading that was the, the earlier um, when he was younger. Yeah, I think he quite liked St. Columbus. I think they he had a good art teacher who was very encouraging. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and the art, he, he, he took art because uh, that's one of the few subjects that he was really good at. He described himself as being a complete duffer at school though that's a little hard to imagine now. I think so <laughs> I, I don't I think he was being a bit disingenuous there from what I know of him anyway so um, he he took art um, as an optional subject at St Columbus and uh, his parents paid an extra fee uh-huh. for him to do that um, which he described as um, making him distinct from all the other boys who played sports. And um, so I, I think he really enjoyed that. Um, he was taken to um, visit uh, a Miss Mae Guinness, who had a, a wonderful collection of modern art, um, uh, the likes of which he had never seen or mm. been exposed to before. And she was an important modernist artist herself. So I guess that really made an impression on him as a 
I suppose he was about 15 or so, maybe, when they visited. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So from there, he went to Trinity College and he had intended to go into the um, the Anglican clergy. Mm. Um, but um, after a year of studying theology at Trinity, he decided that wasn't going to be a good move for him. So he... Um, uh, did a degree in philosophy and then got a, a, uh, a teaching diploma after that at Trinity. And on graduating, he went to, uh, this would have been just after the war, he went to um, teach at Radley College mm. in Britain. And I think even at an early point, he was very interested in modern and contemporary art because I know he made some wooden sculptures that seemed to hark to, towards uh, the work of Barbara Hepworth. Yes, um, they're rather beautiful little pieces, and I still have three of them. I think he must have made it maybe a dozen. Um, there's a photograph dating from about um, 1946 or 47, mm. showing um, a, 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 quite a few of these pieces. And uh, I used to play with those when I was a small child. Um, <laughs> Playing and, with art? Dreadful, <laughs> um, but they're they're lovely yeah. objects. Um, Th that's something... his, interestingly enough. His mother uh, used to carve wood, ah. and I still have some of her uh, carving chisels. Gosh, though I I've no idea what kind of work she did. Um, there's no nothing left of that. That's amazing. I I had no idea. Do you think he he might have used her? Tools. I, I would think so. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, I mean, certainly abstraction and that he was very interested in what uh, was happening in, in the world of art in at that time, the 40s and 50s. Um, and in fact, the first room of the exhibition focuses on his early abstract work. Um, most would create in the early 1950s when he was working and living in, in the UK. Um, and there's quite a number of the prints which are directly inspired by the clay pits of St. Austell, which you mentioned earlier, um, which were close to his home in Falmouth. Um, but what struck me is there are only a few observational drawings related to this period, um, and we only have one um, in the exhibition. Can you remember George making sketches or taking photographs when he was, you know, visiting St. Austell or, or going around that area? You know, I'm I'm not sure that he did. Um, I'm pretty sure that he never used sketchbooks. Um, and um, our mutual friend, uh, who was a student, Malcolm Ross MacDonald, yes. uh, claimed that he had never seen my father sketch mm -hmm. um, on the spot. But the interesting thing about the St. Austell series of etchings is that they were all done uh, from memory. Right. And a large number of them were done uh, after we had moved to Canada in 1957. But uh, the early ones I find um, very interesting as well. They are, I think, quite clearly influenced by the uh, St. Ives School and the um, the artists that were working at the time, um, some of those shapes were like a bit like uh, Barbara Hepworth. 
Yes. And also perhaps a, a bit of influence from his um, his tutor at art college at the West England College of Art, um, Paul Filer, who Paul was Filer, one yeah. of the St. Ives artists. So, yes, certainly that does seem to come through quite strongly. They're very powerful prints, um, very pared back. And you can only barely make out maybe workings, you know, within the clay pits. Yes, and um, that series becomes increasingly abstract throughout his life, so that they're more representational uh, in the 50s than mm -hmm. they are in uh, the 70s and 80s. Yes. And he was still referring back to that, that period. Yeah, and that was one of the very interesting things about um, George Wells, I think, in terms of printmaking, is that he he often went back, he revisited the same plate and would rework it and create a, a new, um, a completely new print. Um, he did that quite a lot, I think. Yes, and um, that's that's quite interesting because he um, he obviously was a very skilled printmaker, and I think probably considered an expert in in etching. Yes. Um, and I think it another reason for having his work in a public collection. I think that um, it would be very good uh, for students of printmaking to look at the work and to look at um, various states of the uh, prints that he made. Absolutely. So because, that uh, yeah. we, we donated uh, several series of, of prints with uh, multiple states, and uh, you can see how they dramatically change. It's one of the great advantages of etching, I think. Yeah, no, I think it's, certainly. It, it's a bit sculptural in that respect. True, and also you're carving into the the metal plate as well, albeit on a, a 2D uh, surface. Yeah, it's, it's quite... Certainly printmakers who have seen the show have been fascinated with the technique and how he um, revisits uh, plates again and um, changes things and also often uses, um, you know, different coloured paper or different inks to create very different effects. And we have some, some of those examples in the exhibition um, and in fact, one of the the interesting things that um, uh, fascinated me was the stock book or the record book of all his prints. Um, it's an invaluable record, and I know you you have um, you have it in the family collection still. But it's mm -hmm. a large book, meticulously handwritten, and it lists all of George's prints from I think 1947 until the the early 1990s with details of paper used, printing technique, the number of impressions pulled even and the various states of the print and when he printed each impression, you know, the different years. Um, do you think this stock book, as he called it, um, encapsulates how he worked at his art as an artist? I mean, that meticulous way of working or, or do you think he created it because he he wanted to leave a good record for posterity? Or I, I think it it's probably the latter, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm pretty sure that he didn't start the stock book until after he retired in 1985. Ah, I, I mean, see. he may he may have kept uh, records, but I don't think they were as complete and categorized in in detail like this. Um, 
So, and the interesting thing is that as far as I know, I've never seen any um, documentation of his sculptural work or, or paintings, for example. Oh, I see. So I think it does relate specifically to his, um, his print legacy. Mm. And uh, I mean, it's fantastic that we have that because uh, quite often he didn't make editions of prints. Uh, so this is um, really a document uh, listing everything that he did make himself. Yes. He, he was um, quite opposed to uh, cancelling uh, printing plates so that they couldn't be used in the future uh, or faked, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so the, again, this um, document that we have in the record book is is pretty definitive statement of what he did make it sure. during his life. And I guess there's something didactic about it as well. I mean, certainly for me as a researcher, it's incredibly useful. But maybe he almost even later on he wanted to explain how he created certain prints. You know, the the inks that were used and so on. Because of course he was a, a teacher for over thirty years. Um, teaching at third level, first at Falmouth, of course, in the UK, and later at McMaster University. Um, yeah. So he had a great influence as a teacher, I think. Yes, I'm, I'm sure he did. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, from what I gather from some of his students that I know, um, you know, they were greatly influenced by him. And, yes. uh, greatly admired yeah. him. Uh, he, they took him very seriously. <laughs> and uh, he also had um, a great interest in collecting prints himself. So prints by well-known, significant artists, people like Dürer, Goya and the German Expressionists. Um, and, and I think he used some of that collection during his teaching or while he was a teacher. Um, and I guess this is something people wouldn't know much about. Could you briefly describe the collection and its importance? Well, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that because um, just recently I've come across a document that he left to to us, to my brother and sister and me, about um, his collection. And um, uh the amount of work that he had was a great source of anxiety to, to my mother because uh, the house was cluttered up with uh, steel sculptures that sort of kicked around in the basement and, uh, and all this work on paper. But so I think he did start to collect prints uh, quite early, probably even in Dublin. Um, but he didn't seriously start collecting work until he uh, started teaching at McMaster University in Hamilton. That was uh, around 1960. Um, and he had persuaded the university to build up a collection of German Expressionist prints. And uh, I think that amounted to, to about 300 prints by the time um, you know, over the years, they collected that much. Um, so he started purchasing prints at auction for himself during that period of time in the 60s and 70s. 
And as he said, uh, prints were quite inexpensive. You know, um, he was uh, buying prints for twenty-five or fifty dollars a, a piece, which would be worth worth hundreds now. Um, and he did use them as uh, teaching aids uh, at McMaster. Mm. Um, so he he had. Uh, German Expressionist prints, he had uh, Beckman, Corinth, Dix, wow. quite a few Rouault, uh, Leibel, Collowitz. Mm. And then he had a, a very esoteric collection of, um, of other stuff. Um, you know, some humorous work by Gilray and Rowlandson. But um, there were quite a few uh, sort of picturesque prints from the 18th and 19th century. And he, after he retired, he put together two exhibitions um, from his own collection. One was on the picturesque and, uh, and the other was on title pages. And he, he was very fond of title pages because they were not only inexpensive, but they were quite often very beautifully engraved introductions to the book. So there were like a bit of advertising for the True. for the book. And I think he probably appreciated just the skill in creating them as well, uh, even though they weren't sort of art prints per se. Well, some of them certainly were. I mean, there were um, Piranesis that he bought uh, Piranesi title pages, ah. um, which I think sparked off the, the interest in collecting title pages. So okay. he collected, I think he said, about 200 title pages, and um, they've been donated to the University of Guelph in Ontario. Brilliant. So print obviously was was hugely important, both his own his own printmaking and also looking at the work of others. But in fact, um, sculpture really took priority for much of his working life. Um, can you maybe describe um, maybe one particular piece of his that uh, uh, was very important um, or, or how you see his sculpture in general? Yes, yeah, so... Um... He started welding um, as a result of getting interested in Reg Butler um, just before we left uh, Falmouth. And um, he made uh, one sculpture, which he brought over with him to Canada when we emigrated. Ah. And uh, um, on selling that, he was able to buy... Um, uh, welding equipment to continue welding in, in Canada. So he made um, uh, two or three sculptures quite early on in uh, about 1960, one of which was the first Lazarus figure that he made, um, which is a very powerful sculpture still. Mm. Um, uh, but they became increasingly, uh, I would say, lifelike so that his technique of welding steel uh steel wire yeah and that very uh, first produced a skin yeah that very first lazarus um sculpture 
there's kind of an interesting story how that came about. I think he he just found a piece of metal strapping on a railway line close to home. Was that the case? That's 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 right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so he's, so he's, he used to walk along the the local railway line, and uh, trains would bring scrap metal to Hamilton, which is a steel city, and um, and he discovered this coil of of strapping which um, evoked the um, the grave cloths of, of the Lazarus figure. Amazing to connect the two, really, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> but I, I've seen photographs of that sculpture. It's incredibly powerful. I mean, Lazarus is completely bound up. Um, uh, it's, it has a, an abstract sense to it, too, um, but it's, it's very powerful. And of course, religious or, well, biblical imagery um, really appears in his work over and over, and certainly in the exhibition in the second room, um, it's devoted, certainly one side is devoted to um, images of figures from the Bible. And what strikes me about about his um, interest in these biblical figures, I suppose he had a very good knowledge from his early training in Trinity College and so on. Um, but much of his work is really rooted in his deep concern for humanity. And it's mm-hmm. the same um, with the biblical imagery because he focused on their humanity and frailty um, and I'm just remembering you know the powerful prints and sculptures like the raising of Lazarus as we've spoken about the denial of Peter and the passion of Christ and it's it's really just sorrow pain confusion all those human uh, feelings and emotions loneliness um, that are, are brought through in in his art both the sculpture um, and and the prints too but do you think, I mean, with with all of that biblical imagery, which is, is comes through very strongly in his work, you know, was he Christian or did he did he have faith or how how would you see that part of his life? Um, it's it's an interesting question because he wasn't. Um, he wasn't a churchgoer by any means, and he wasn't conventionally religious. Um, but he he was obviously very moved by um the christian imagery um but you know it's not it's not a conventional interpretation artistic interpretation of of the bible stories so i think he's kind of translated them into um a much more modern um yeah I, I feel like uh, almost comparing him in this sense with Caravaggio, who, you know, used models, people who were around him. He showed them warts and all. And, and Wallace, similarly, his biblical figures, you know, you could sort of meet them on the street. It's just, say, with Peter, it's it's this awful feeling of guilt, guilt and anxiety. <laughs> we mm-hmm. all, we all, it, it's etched into his, literally etched into the plate, into that image of Peter. And, you know, um, I think he just gets to the humanity of each of these these uh, characters. Yes, I, I think that's true. Um, mm. Would you, It seems to me that um, a lot are, I mean, I obviously never met um, George Wallace. He, he died in 2009, as you said. But it seems to me that a lot of his characteristics and personality come across in his art. And obviously there's a darkness in many of the prints um, and a sense that much is wrong with the world. And yet often then there's this 
wry sense of humour that comes through, um, particularly maybe in the Summer Shadows series of etchings. Um, as his son, how would you describe George Was? What was he like? You know, he was he was a very kind person. Um, he, I'd never heard him swear ever, mm. um, and he was very generous. He was generous with his art. He used to give prints away or sell them at very low prices. Um, but at the same time, he had this incredible um, kind of intellectual understanding of uh, history and of uh, art in particular. I think he really enjoyed the art of the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, but again, he was he was very generous on a day-to-day um, level. You know, he would uh, go out of his way to help people and assist people. Mm. Um, I think one of the uh, one of the problems with picking up and leaving McMaster and uh, Dundas, where we lived, and retiring to the West Coast, is that he lost a lot of his friends at that time, and um, so he became much more introspective. I think after retiring. Um, and yet, um, I guess, was it at that time when he started writing letters? Because there's some wonderful letters. We have a few in the collection now, thanks to you and the family uh, through that donation. But he seemed to be a, a wonderful letter writer um, who really made things come alive on the page. Yes. Well, and I wish he'd written more. I mean, he started several times Um with a, a bit of an autobiography about growing up in Ireland. Um, but it was never finished, and I, I wish that he had written more. He he wrote a wonderful essay about um, Lazarus <laughs> and um, uh, about how he, uh, as a student, he had a, a, a small part-time job taking care of um this figure, uh, Gore Booth, who was um, slightly mentally ill. I think and he, who, he had been, was he affected? It was around the time of the war. I don't think he fought in the war, but he had, he had some um, issue, yeah, mental health issue. So I, I think he had, um, Gore Booth had um, had this uh, distressing incident after the First World War and then um, he was slowly coming awake uh, uh, 15 or 20 years after that in Ireland, mm. um, um, but not completely there. And uh, so my father used to take him for walks and uh, um, look after him. Uh, Gosh. So I, I suppose that kind of maybe came through in his his interest, perhaps in in Lazarus, um, which he revisited again and again through his art. Yes, it's it's quite possible. Though the La- the Lazarus figure is interesting because it uh, appears right from the very beginning of his work in uh, that's true the fifties. Fifties, yes. 
and uh, even the monotypes uh, that he was, some of the monotypes he was making at the end of his life were of the same subject. Mm. Well, I suppose so, a very positive figure in one sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about redemption and uh, the fact that perhaps there's hope despite uh, the awful things that, that happen in the world. Um, I mean, your father, it's interesting, many artists, you know, uh, that we know through history, you know, big names like Picasso and so on, they're very, um, they're focused completely on their, their work. So everyone else kind of loses out in terms of people around them and relationships and so on. And yet your father seemed to be able to balance the two, his um, focus as an artist. He was also very much a family man. Um, and you and your siblings are all involved in creative work. Do you think George Wallace had a great influence in the paths you took or, or not really? Is that how would you see that? Well, I, I suppose he did, um, though. I mean, he he certainly never pushed us in any in any specific direction. Uh, he did te teach my sister how to etch, but um, I mean, for example, he never taught me anything about drawing or, or art. <laughs> well, I suppose the fact that observational drawing wasn't a, a big part of his, the way he worked, maybe that was part of it. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, he encouraged me in many other ways. He, um, you know, I was very interested in um, building model airplanes when I was a teenager. He used to uh, get involved in that and take me to uh, flying competitions and things like that. And uh, I built a boat when I was 15. And wow. He helped me with that. Um, so he he was very skilled um, at making things with his hands. Um, and I think that certainly influenced me and my brother, who is now a shipwright, a wooden boat um, builder. Right, my yeah. sister, my sister, who uh, was probably the more artistic of all of us, uh, is still painting. Um, she she does very detailed drawings and paintings, um, mostly of birds these mm -hmm. days. And um, your mother too, Margaret. Um, she met George when they were students in Trinity, I think. Um, but she was also an artist. Was she a very important? influence on George? Uh, I think she was. Um, she she actually wasn't at Trinity, but uh, she was doing... Ah, sorry, I got that wrong. Uh, ...teacher training. She trained as uh, um, an early childhood uh, teacher in Froebel mm. technique. Um, anyway, they, they met at... Uh, at uh, puppeteering group during the war, a marionette theatre in Dublin. Um, yes, I think she was um, a big influence, a, a very stabilising influence in, in his life. Um, she did a lot of um, fabric work later in life, um, applique and um, printing fabrics, uh, and had a little business um, selling fabric, actually. And was her work quite abstract or more figurative? 
I would say, well, a bit, a bit of both, but uh, she used a lot of uh, Celtic iconography in the uh, the vestments and uh, altar frontals that she made for the church. Um, but yeah, I think I think she had quite a a modernist sensibility as well, uh, so that the furniture in the house was sort of scan mod, and uh, she uh, tended to use uh, more modern textiles and things like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you said earlier that um, George and Margaret, your parents, they they moved to uh, British Columbia um, when he retired from teaching um and sadly he i think you you mentioned to me before that um in the last years of his life george uh, lived with dementia um and i think he he was was in a care home um towards the end but i wonder did drawing did drawing remain important to him or was that just gone um when he he um when he had dementia uh, it's hard to say if it remained important. It, it was very important for, for us, for the family, um, because initially it appeared as if he'd lost all of his ability to to draw. It's, it's a very, Alzheimer's is a very devastating illness. Yes. And uh, for a very intelligent person to lose his memory like that is... Um, pretty awful. But um, what happened is that my sister started bringing him drawing materials in the care home, and he started drawing again um, during the last year of his life. And he made some very strange drawings, um, which are very personal and, and quite moving, because they do actually relate to imagery from his previous life as an artist yes uh and that that's kind of remarkable so that um there was something deeply embedded in his in his mind Mm. and those images were they figurative were they connected with maybe the later monoprints that he did those heads of of businessmen and uh people like that i I think they were they they were mostly figurative. There were some still life drawings, uh, which were the the first ones that he did mm. when he started drawing again. But then there were some strange uh, characters, which uh, you know, when I asked him on one occasion, "Who are these people?" He said he he didn't know who they were. Mm. Uh, they just appeared on the page. Almost like an automatic drawing. Wow! Yeah. Um, <laughs> and do you think it gave him pleasure to to draw? At that oh, point. Oh, I think un- undoubtedly it did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's amazing. Yeah, I'd I'd love to see some of those drawings. Um, well, I, um, there are some now on the website which we have put together. There was there's a sample of some of the drawings that he made during that period of his life. 
Yeah, that is actually an amazing project. And you've spent, I know, a lot of time and energy um, on creating the site. And it's very easy to use. It covers all of his um, output across media. And um, it's very helpfully divided into thematic and chronological sections. Um, it's it's very easy to find www.georgewallace.ca for Canada, obviously. Um, I wonder what inspired you to undertake such a big project, which is hugely valuable to researchers and people interested in art. It was a much bigger project than I had imagined. <laughs> uh, after he died, um, again, we we weren't quite sure um, how we were going to, you know, dis, <laughs> distribute the, the work or get rid of it. Um, and we thought that a website might be useful for helping to sell some of the prints. Um, in fact, that has never happened. Um, I think maybe a couple of times people have um, have bought work from the site. But um, we did create uh, a first generation of the, the present website, uh, which was based on an older technology didn't work very well, and uh, I myself couldn't uh, add or modify anything on the site. I had mm, to rely annoying. on my daughter to do that. <laughs> very annoying. <laughs> so um, about, I guess about this time last year, I started um, reconsidering the website and decided to rebuild it completely and uh, mm -hmm. rephotographed a lot of work. So there are very many images. I think there may be 800 images on the site. Mm, brilliant. And that covers um, obviously all of his work, not just the graphic work, which we focus on in the exhibition, but also his, his sculptural work. That's right. And um, what I found interesting is that there was a curatorial aspect to, to doing this, where in order to make the site um, easy to navigate, I had to... Um, uh, divide the work up into um, various thematic mm. uh, sections. So um, that was very interesting for me as a project. Yes. Um, and you know the way you've divided them. I wonder if um, George Wallace himself, if you asked him, you know, what section, what aspect he would um, be most proud of, what do you think he would choose? Uh, uh, <laughs> Hard <don't> question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not in. Yeah, one one of the things that strikes me about his work, and and I devoted a, a full room to it, are his his later monoprints, um, which are really very striking. I know that um he was very inspired by an exhibition of uh, monoprints by Degas, which he saw in 1958 when he was uh, in London, uh, when he was back um visiting visiting home, mm -hmm. I guess, on his way to Ireland. Um, but he kind of didn't, he really only returned in earnest to monoprints in, in the in the 80s. And he created a huge number um, of these images. And some of them, well, the heads of big businessmen, there's a series, I think, called Big Businessmen. Um, and he, he used the little passport-sized images on the back of the Globe and Mail, the uh, National Newspaper of Canada, and then sort of blew them up into these incredible um, portraits, if you like, even though they're not. They're all anonymous people. He called them mugshots. Yes. And 
to my mind, I mean, it just shows that at that late stage in his career, he was, I think, creating some of his most unique work, his his best things. Do you know what he thought about the monoprints or did he talk much about them? Um, I don't remember him talking about them much mm. to me. Um, he certainly produced a lot. There are about 400 uh, monotypes that he made. Um, yes. But... He did go back. He 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 said that quite often um, he used uh, monotype as a technique for his students who were inhibited by getting anything down on paper. Yes. That it was a very fluid and uh, spontaneous technique. Of course, because you work directly onto the, you sort of paint onto the plate and then scrape into it and then just put your sheet of paper and roll it through and... Bingo, you have a wonderful image. Yes, so what I'm impressed about is the spontaneity of that work, unlike, you know, an etching where you're working over it, uh, constantly working the surface. This is a very rapid technique and uh, very spontaneous. And and I think that in itself... um, allows this kind of witty observation to come through in, in yeah, there's a great these images of, of the heads. Yeah. <laughs> He's kind of poking fun at these people who maybe are a little overinflated uh, in terms oh, of he ego. Certainly, he <laughs> certainly is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's one of the things I love um, about his work. There's a great balance between this very um, raw, moving images of suffering. And yet then there's other works which are really quite quite clever and amusing and there's there's one great one in terms of the monoprints um it's called unwelcome guest <laughs> and it has um two worried looking men on either side of a a very um gentle looking skeleton in the middle but obviously we know who the uh, the unwelcome guest is um yeah. and he your father wrote quite a lot um on prints and uh, printmaking um, and one thing that struck me, he I think he put on an exhibition of uh, prints by Hogarth uh, while he was in McMaster University, I, I think. Um, and he wrote a really, really beautiful piece on Hogarth. And I just thought I might just uh, remind you of, of something he said, because I think this could refer to his own work. Um, I just quote, he thought of his prints and paintings as mirrors in which the people of the time might see themselves reflected in their sometimes grim, sometimes humorous surfaces, we may perhaps still find something of ourselves reflected back to us. Um, mm. Now, he was talking about Hogarth, but I don't know if you'd agree. I feel that could be said of his own work. Yes, I think so. And uh, I think your title of the exhibition that's on now, uh, Reflections on Life, is... Um, is a wonderful title for his work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does. It really encompasses la- life in all its its aspects, um, from landscape to um, biblical imagery to just images of human suffering, and then on to yeah, uh, newspaper reports and so on. It's and yet he distills it all down, you know, into a very unique vision of the world. I think. I've always been impressed by how he worked, he could work simultaneously 
um, on figurative and completely abstract work. Yes. Um, you know, I, I tend to think of artists that go through periods of one or the other, but uh, he worked simultaneously mm -hmm. in two very different styles. Yeah, it's quite amazing. I would certainly, when, when uh, people can to come in and see the exhibition because there's such a wide variety. And, and as you said, he, he wasn't very well known in Canada. And likewise, he's not very well known in Ireland, but we're really hoping to change that um, with the exhibition and with the various um, lectures and programming that we have ar around this exhibition. Um, so um, I, I think uh, we've given it a really good, you've given us a really good insight into George Wallace, um, the family man, as well as, as the artist. Um, and I hope uh, a lot of people will get to see the show. Thanks very well, much, Kate. I, I, I um, have to thank you a great deal. I think you've done a tremendous job in um, selecting and curating and mounting this exhibition. So um, thank you. I am personally very grateful. <laughs> well, it's it's very exciting as a curator to you know discover an artist, a new artist that you knew nothing about, who is just incredible in terms of the techniques, the skill. Um, the imagination. So, um, yeah, I'll be shouting it from the rooftops. Come and see George Wallace. <laughs>